Well, how good it is to be here together on this beautiful morning. There's really nothing on earth like this. And yet many are skeptical. You might remember I shared with you a couple of years ago an interaction I had on local social media where someone had posted this, well, another beautiful Sunday. It astounds me that people get in their cars and drive to a church to worship a God that they've never seen, spending their entire life worshiping and doing all the rituals to get to heaven or an afterlife. I was one of those people for a long time. Well, though many may be able to recite the facts of our gospel or of Christianity, the truth is, Many people don't understand and don't have the, the comprehension of what's happening here today. They could talk about worship. They could explain about Jesus. They could understand some aspects of the Bible. But in its essence, what we're doing is incomprehensible to people who are not yet believers. To say it another way, each and every believer in Jesus possesses an ability that's not available to the unbeliever, and that is seeing life as it really is. Seeing life as it really is. And that includes the eternal worth and the value of the things that are often dismissed or despised by this world. Now, here's the question this morning. Why is this so? Why don't others get it? What one author author has called our pagan peers, why don't they understand what we're doing this morning? Why don't they see the value in lifting up Jesus, of humbling ourselves under the word, of loving people that maybe in another context we might not even like very well? But in the body of Christ, we love each other. Why don't people get that? How do we explain it that so many people don't get it? I don't know if you figured it out, but we're a little bit of a minority this morning, right? So how do we explain that? How do we understand it? And here also is a danger. Is it possible that sometimes we're seduced back into that same kind of blindness? The same kind of thoughtlessness, the same kind of confusion about what matters? Is it possible that sometimes we who should know better, is it possible that sometimes we drift into habits that contradict what we say we believe? We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, working through that New Testament letter. If you could open your Bibles there to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning. The church at Corinth, as most of you know, was a somewhat troubled church. And what the Apostle Paul, remember we believe Paul wrote this inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, so therefore, even though it was written to an ancient church, it has application to us today. And what Paul is addressing is what spiritual people look like in a, in a darkened world. He's going to talk about that all the way up through chapter 5, and then he begins to deal with some other issues that are fascinating as we'll look at them. But what we're going to find today is something that perhaps is surprising to us if we've not thought about it much lately. And that is the mysterious, the marvelous, the absolutely necessary work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, the one we call the third person of the Trinity, His active work in eternity past, His active work in history, His active work today, and how He will bring us into eternity the Holy Spirit. So with that as background, let's back up just a bit and go to the beginning of chapter 2 where Pastor Dave was camped last week, and we'll read down into our text this morning, all of chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and as I read, I remind you this is God's word for us today. Look what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. Now our text this morning, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, or some of your translations read spiritual truths in spiritual words. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You see what Paul is doing here? He's been contrasting human wisdom, which ultimately is folly, with God's wisdom, which is considered folly by the world. And lest he be misunderstood, beginning in verse number 6, he doesn't want anyone to misinterpret his reasoning or his assertions. Essentially, he's saying God's wisdom is not folly. God's wisdom is truth. For the sake of our discussion this morning, God's wisdom is true truth. Now, you recognize true truth is the only kind of truth there is, right? There's only one truth. But we use that this morning to emphasize that as opposed to what goes by truth in the world in general or in people's lives individually, when people say my truth, when people say my wisdom, when people say I'm living my life, the Bible says, the Bible is the revelation of God's wisdom, which is truth. It is true truth. It is ultimate. And so here's where we are this morning. This is all about true truth, which is God's cross-centered wisdom. It's the wisdom that is grounded in the gospel. And for Paul, the gospel is grounded in the fact that a Messiah was crucified on a cross. It is a cross-centered wisdom. Now, in our text this morning, although earlier in the chapter it is mentioned, the cross isn't mentioned But still, the gospel, the good news, Jesus dying for sinners, it's the controlling theme of this entire letter. I would say it's the controlling theme of Christianity. It is the gospel. Calvary, where Jesus was crucified, that mountain outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, it's the nexus of history. The church, which was birthed through the cross, through the gospel, is called in the New Testament the pillar and support of the truth. The gospel is the center of reality. And this is a good time to stop, as we do every week, and just remind you. If you are here, and you are seeking to live your life on your own terms, and you have never come to a place in life where you have acknowledged your sin and cast yourself on the mercy of God's court and trusted that Jesus and Jesus alone can cover your guilt then you are in spiritual danger. The Bible classifies you as a dead man walking. You're already condemned. But what the gospel teaches, it's not spelled out in this text, but what the gospel holds out, what the Bible teaches is that for you, anyone who is willing, they can come, they can repent, and they can believe in Jesus Christ. And this is the core 
of what Jesus accomplished. This is the core of what we believe. This is the core of what the Bible teaches. This is the reason that Christianity exists, so that guilty men and women can be made right with a holy God. That's the gospel. And Paul was, and we are not to be, I should say it this way, Paul was not, and we also are not to be ashamed of the gospel or of the cross. And what 1 Corinthians is telling us, and what is going to flow out of this text, is that this simple gospel is the ultimate wisdom of the universe. The truth is, I'm not a very smart guy, and neither are most of you. I think we have one or two nuclear physicists in our church, but other than the, the couple of you, we're not really that smart. But the mystery that is unfolded and revealed in this text is that we all have access to ultimate reality that helps define everything in the universe. And that's what we're going to find in our text. There's a paradox about God's wisdom. It's been said many times in church history. There's a sense in which this wisdom, this truth of God, and it's encapsulated and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a sense in which it's shallow enough for a toddler to wade in, yet an elephant might drown. The very same gospel can drown an elephant, if he's unbelieving, but a toddler can wade in the waters. And that's the paradox that we're stuck with. Let's look at the text, and let me try to show you what I mean. Here's what happens in our text this morning. We're in verse 6 down to verse 16. But what I found this week is that verses 6 and 7 really lay out the theme and make the major points. And then Paul circles back and unpacks each of the points again. And so really, we're going to, in a sense, be repetitive this morning. We're going to start with verses 6 and 7, and I'll show you what we find there. And then the rest of the message just circles back to those truths in verses 8 down through verse 16. And so, for example, the first thing that we find here is that God's cross-centered wisdom is for His own. God's cross-centered wisdom is designed for, it is, it is beneficial to those who are God's own. And we find that in verse 6 where Paul writes, look at it again, he's trying to correct any misunderstanding, and he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So he's talking about genuine wisdom, wisdom that's not folly, but it is legitimate. And among the mature, we impart wisdom. Now, a little bit of kind of mental work we have to do here, so hold on for just a moment. The word mature, immediately we think of a contrast with childish. And the reality is, if you know your Bible, beginning in chapter 3, Paul begins to make distinctions between Christians who are immature or childish or fleshly and those who are spiritual. But that doesn't seem to be the way Paul is using the word mature here. Some of your Bibles may say, among the perfect. Well, we know none of us are perfect. But this Greek word here has the idea of coming to completion. And it's in contrast not to what comes in chapter 3, we'll see it next week, but it's in contrast to what he's already said beginning in chapter 1. There are mature in the sense of spiritual, because they have come to completion spiritually, they have been redeemed. There are others who are not mature. You can't claim that completeness because they have not yet come to faith. Words are like that. Words can be used in different ways. And in interpreting Scripture, just like in interpreting life, we have to be careful. I was in uh, Dallas, North Dallas, this last weekend, and I saw, if, if you know anything about Texas and about Dallas, you know that uh, it, it is a religion there. The Dallas Cowboys, it's a religion, right? I mean, they, I mean, they have a temple there you can go see. It's like the Dallas Cowboys. So I'm driving along, coming out through a parking lot, Target, and, and I look over and there's Cowboys Nail Salon. Now, I had a lot of questions about this. And it, it struck me for just a moment, and then I recognized that there are all kinds of different ways you can use the concept of cowboy. It can mean cowboy before there was ever a football team. It can mean the Dallas Cowboys football team. Or it could just mean identifying with the culture of Dallas and their emphasis on the cowboys. Now, the truth is, 
it's possible I could go in that nail salon and find all of the Dallas Cowboys getting their nail done, nails done, I suppose. We don't really know for sure because you have to determine a context before you really understand how a word is used. Now, that seems to be what Paul is doing here. He's contrasting maturity, not with immaturity. That's going to come next week. But he's contrasting maturity or completeness with those that have no life at all. With those who are in verse 18 of chapter 1, they are perishing. With those who classify the gospel and the cross as foolish in chapter 1. With those later on in our text today, with those who do not receive the things of God. People who have received the things of God are complete. People who reject it, they're not complete at all. So, all I'm saying to you is that when Paul is saying, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, he's talking about us. It's for us. This wisdom is for people who have come to spiritual completeness in the sense they've come to faith in Christ. This is us. It's maturity as identity. Next week, we're going to deal with immaturity as behavior. It's a separate issue. But the question to ask here is, do we recognize that this cross-centered wisdom, this is not, this is not some esoteric far-removed, Sunday morning kind of theology, kind of ivory tower kind of discussion. This is not like when I was in seminary, you'd go to the coffee shop and the theologians were debating, you know, kind of like the medieval theologians, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. It's not that kind of truth. It is wisdom for living. Paul says, this is the wisdom I've given you. It's it's for everyone who's a Jesus follower. We're going to see that as he circles back to it beginning in verse 8. Cross-centered wisdom is for God's own. Secondly, also in these verses, cross-centered wisdom is by his design. Look at this, especially in verse 7. He says, but we impart a... a, Well, let's go back and read verse 6, the second part of the verse. Although... It is not a wisdom of this age, because that's what he's been saying, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. One author said they're on their way out. So you see the implication? You don't want to set your wisdom on losers. Losers on a cosmic scale. They're passing away. They're on their way out. And again, Paul circles back to them in just a moment. We'll look at that. Verse 7, but we impart a secret, and the word there is the idea of mystery. And you've heard before that in the New Testament especially, a mystery is something which previously was unclear or hidden, but now is revealed. It's not an ongoing Agatha Christie puzzle that you have to try to figure out. It's now something that God has made clear. And this is what he's saying here. This wisdom, it's secret in the sense that it has been hidden. It it has been covered up in the sense unavailable. But now it's this hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. God has designed this way of living. This true truth, it comes from God. It's all by his decree. It's his design. He has ordained these things. So God was never confused. God was never surprised. All of these things are under the decree of God. And it says this present age, as opposed to before the ages. This is when God decreed before the ages. Not this present age, because the rulers of this age are passing away. But there is this truth that will last forever. It is not temporal like current rulers, but it is eternal like the God who decreed it. God has planned and decreed all of his purposes before the ages. This is where this cross-centered wisdom comes from. And so you see, you get a sense of its weightiness and its value and its power because God's the one who designed it. It's by his design. You go and you read in Ephesians 1 and you find over and over again, What the text says in Ephesians 1 is that God has done all of this before the foundation of the world. God planned it all. And so this process that we talk about often, creation, and then the fall, and then redemption, and then eternal consummation. None of it came as a surprise to God because it was in God's mysterious decree before it all began. This is all God's design. Now, the issue here is whether you want to recreate the wheel on your own and find your own wisdom or whether you'll choose to live by a wisdom that has always been and always will be, because God is the designer of it. 
God's cross-centered wisdom is for His own. It is by His design. And then third, we find here in verse 7, that God's cross-centered wisdom is toward our good and His glory. Where do I find that? Look at what it says in verse 7. This is a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. And look at these words. For His glory. Is that what your Bible say? For our glory. It is God's plan that people like you and me share in His glory. It is, it is God's plan that we be a representation of His glory, and in doing so, the glory drifts over and bleeds over onto us. Pastor Dave implied much of this last week in the text regarding what are you going to end up boasting in? What will you depend in on? We have this eternal promise that God's blessing, that God's wisdom, that God's plan will bleed over into our own glory eternally. And that's the mystery because we know we're sinners, but God is pleased to give us His glory, and it will last forever. So God's cross-centered wisdom is for His own, it's by His design, and it's toward our good, and when it's toward our good and glory, it's His glory. So now what Paul does, beginning verse 8, is he circles back and he visits each of those issues again. Look at verse 8. He says that essentially this true truth that we're talking about, this God-centered wisdom, it's for those of us who love Him. It's for those of us who love Him. Look at it in verse 8. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see that name, Lord of glory? Who is the King of glory? Psalm 24. The Lord of glory. The one who was crucified. Again, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. But this is Jesus. Verse 9, but as it is written, and this is taken mainly from Isaiah 64, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And stop right there. We hear that phrase, that text, often quoted about heaven, but that's not specifically what the text is about. By the way, that's true, but that's not specifically what the text is about, because look at what it says. It says in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. We don't have to wait to heaven to understand these things. God has revealed them now. And here's the point. At the end of verse 9, it says he has prepared these things for those who love him. And in verse 10, it says these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So this is clarifying for whom God's wisdom works, who it's designed for, who benefits from it. Now, we have to look at verse 8 for a minute. Who are these rulers of this age who crucified the Lord of glory? Well, the first people that pop into our minds are the human rulers, right? Pilate and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Some scholars even think Caesar is added in here. And what this is saying is that had they understood true truth, if they'd understood God's wisdom, they wouldn't have put Jesus on the cross. They, they, if they had recognized who he was, they would not have crucified him. But even that hypothetical, it opens up two possibilities that, quite frankly, I don't have the answer to. Either they wouldn't have crucified him because they would have recognized that this is the way for God's plan to be accomplished, and they were opposite God's plan. Or maybe if they had recognized who he was, they would have recognized his great eternal value. They would have been overwhelmed by that value, and they wouldn't have crucified the one who was the Lord of glory. Paul doesn't really explain what he means he basically just means there was a blindness that nobody saw the wisdom of God, and so they crucified him. Throughout history, some scholars have also thought that it's, these rulers are not so much earthly rulers, but spiritual rulers, because that phrase is used in the New Testament. So perhaps these are principalities and powers. Perhaps these are demons. And if the demons had recognized what was going on, they would not have driven Christ to the cross, because in doing so, what happened? They ensured their own doom. A lot of people make the argument, well, the demons understood who Jesus was. I don't think they understood what Jesus was doing. And so, really, they signed their own death warrant. 
Satan, who drove Jesus to the cross by his spiritual darkness and by his temptation and by his evil plan, he accomplished his own disaster. And to quote a, a friend of mine who is not much of a theologian, but he's a pretty good pastor, sin makes you stupid, he says. And there's no one more stupid than the evil one, although he is wise and subtle. But in the wisdom of God, he's foolish. Quite frankly, I think it's both. Just like in John 13, it says that Judas was, was infused or empowered by Satan to go and do what he would end up doing and betraying Jesus. I think that's what's happening here. The earthly rulers were empowered by demonic rulers. And the point is, here's the point. Regardless of what the earthly rulers would have done, had they, understand, had they understood who Jesus is and was, the point is this, their unbelief accomplished God's purposes. That's what this is saying. Satan's folly, driving Jesus to the cross, accomplished redemption. At least it helped accomplish redemption. Satan was merely a pawn in the hand of God's ordaining plan. Which, remember, where did it begin? It began in history, in eternity. And this mirrors the themes of the passage regarding worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. Satan is the epitome of worldly wisdom, and yet how foolish he was in driving the Messiah to the cross. Because in doing so, he brought about his own doom. It was God's plan, D.A. Carson says, it was God's plan to have wicked human beings affect his own good purposes of redemption. And implied in this, I think unstated, but implied, is if that's true, catch what we're saying. The ultimate plan of the evil one, when he carried it out, pronounced his own destruction. The implication is that's what worldly wisdom gets you. In, in, in the folly of worldly, earthly, human arrogance, thinking, now I've got it all together, and you bring about disaster. And implied in this all through is, is that the way you want to live? Is, is that the way I want to live? Do, do I want to live in such a way that I'm chasing after a worldly temporal wisdom? Whereas God has shown how foolish that ends up. It's a question we need to ask. Again, D.A. Carson says it more eloquently than I can. He says, it is idiotic, that is not too strong a word, to extol the world's perspective and secretly lust after its limited vision. That is what the Corinthians were apparently doing. That is what we are in danger of doing every time we, watch this, adopt our world's slogans dote on its heroes, admire its transient stars, seek its admiration, and play to its applause. And how many of us drift close to that in our lives all the time? The wisdom of the world, which is foolishness, and rejecting the foolishness of God, which is ultimately wisdom. Well, he circles back to the second truth, the second assertion, beginning in verse 10. Not only is true truth for those who love him, but also this true truth is by his Holy Spirit, as we've seen. And he unpacks that in verses 10 down into verse 12. Look at it. He says, these things, in other words, the true wisdom of God, the, the true view of reality, these things God has revealed to us, to us again, note, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. What are the depths of God? Well, those things back in verse 9, the things that our eye hasn't seen, our, our ear hasn't heard, our mind hasn't even comprehended. Therefore, we have no way of getting to it. No, we do, because of what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing. Verse 11, here's an analogy. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? I dare say everyone who's ever been married can testify to the truth of that question, right? You think you know the thoughts of your spouse, and you find out you don't. And it's painful, usually, when you find out that you didn't. 
Who knows the, a person's thoughts except the, person, the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. The implication is we can know the thoughts of God. We can know his wisdom. We can know his truth. You see the, the trinity through all of this? The Father who has planned, Christ the Lord of glory who was crucified, and now the Spirit who brings it all to light, who reveals it and then illumines it. The work of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit here is a, is a bridge. The Holy Spirit is a bridge between the, the, the limited minds that we possessed and the deep things of God. And without the Holy Spirit, these things would be incomprehensible to us. So here's how it works. God's wisdom and plan was decreed in eternity past. The Holy Spirit was involved in the mystery of the Trinity. And there was this plan of redemption, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. All to God's greater glory. The Holy Spirit was involved in that. And then God, in the outworking of His plan, the Holy Spirit and providence in God ordaining all things, the the truth of God was held through oral tradition up to the time of Moses. And then Moses wrote down what we know as the first five books of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's Moses writing, but really it's the Holy Spirit who protects and oversees and superintends that truth. And then the same is true for the rest of the authors of Scripture until finally you have Jesus coming. And Jesus came empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember, even conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was involved in the life of Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit works in the early church and especially in the lives of the apostles. And what we have, we have the result of the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of the apostles. We have them in our laps this morning. We have them on our phones. We have an abundance of resources in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about, who communicates, who protects, and then who illumines the Word of God. It's all the Holy Spirit's work. The plan of God, the the cross, the gospel, the Word, the church, even the gathering of the church, gifts of teaching, illumination when you read the Bible, all of these are precious gifts of the Holy Spirit. They should be treasured. They should be cherished. They should be relished. Look at it again in verse 12. We have received the Spirit, not merely human wisdom, but the Spirit. This is not the time. I do not have the resources this morning and the time to go into a theology of all the ways the Holy Spirit both saves us and then indwells us and seals us and then works in our lives. But He does. And if you want to know the wisdom of God, you will never find it apart from the data that the Holy Spirit has inspired and the illumination that the Holy Spirit gives your heart and mind as you read and study. And there are other levels of that. The blessings in the church as the church studies together. The, the qualifications of godly leaders as I attempt to be, as I try to interpret the Word and apply it to you. All of these are gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not merely human wisdom, but it's the Spirit of God. True truth comes by the Holy Spirit. And lest this just remains a lecture, let me just stop and try to drive that nail deeper. If you are here this morning and you hear and sense any truth in what I'm saying, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, which is an incredible, incredible, miraculous blessing. True truth is for those who love Him, True truth is by His Holy Spirit. And true truth is toward practical application. Pick it up in verse 12. The middle of the verse it says, But the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Again, God has been so generous. We shouldn't despise His gifts. The Spirit Himself is a gift. What the Spirit gives are freely given. These are gifts. Verse 13 And Paul says, we, speaking primarily as an apostle, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Or again, it's a very very difficult Greek term because there are 
about four different ways it could be translated. So some of your Bibles say spiritual things with spiritual words. The difference is not drastic. The point is there's a level of God's truth that cannot be ascertained through human effort. That's what Paul is saying. And that's the reason the gathering of the church is important. That's the reason that you don't just read the Bible by yourself and make assumptions that you understand it, but you read it in community and you allow your interpretations to be checked by others because we who have the gift of the Spirit corporately together want to pursue this wisdom that is eternal, that is true truth. And the reality is this is all toward practical application. It's all toward practical application. There are opportunities to apply this truth everywhere. So God's wisdom, God's truth, God's way of viewing the world, which is grounded in the cross of Jesus, the Corinthians had not denied it, but they had dismissed it. They had become enamored with the wisdom of the world that they were used to. Maybe the world that they, want to be ex- they wanted to be accepted in, perhaps. Maybe just the things that the world offered, those things were seducing them away from the truths of God. And so what we know from beginning in chapter 1, and we're going to see it all the way in for the next couple of months, is instead of holding to the wisdom, the truth of God, instead of clinging to God's true truth, they Again, they would have never been guilty in the church at Corinth to say, I reject that. They just basically said, you know what, that's one option. That's one option among many. And how foolish that is. Because God's wisdom, true truth, it was for them. And it was from the Holy Spirit. And it was for their practical benefit. It was for practical application in their lives every day. You see, they had to ask themselves every day, where will I get my truth from today? Where am I going to go for wisdom today? I don't know that people talk about it very much anymore, but when I was young, a long time ago, everybody would talk about the horoscope. They'd read their, you know, we used to have these things called newspapers. I don't know if you remember them, but they're in newspapers. And in the newspapers, there was always, there were the comics, and there was a crossword, and there was Dear Abby or Ann Landers, and then there was always a horoscope. And it got to be a little bit of a trope in Bible-believing churches that pastors would always warn against the horoscope. But the truth is, some people go to that kind of thing for their wisdom. Well, where will you go, though? Everyone, everyone go somewhere to find your true truth, what you think is true. Everyone does. Where are you getting your truth? Those of us who are God's own, we are dependent on His truth, on His Word, on His Holy Spirit for true truth. Let me show you how this works. Paul prays about this in the book of Ephesians Look at what he says in chapter 1. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you all in my prayers. Here's what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Look in verse 18. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe? That's God's wisdom. And Paul says, I pray that, that the eyes of your hearts, really, in a sense, you could say the eyes of your minds, he, he says, enlightened, that you would wake up and see what real wisdom is and see what God has done for you. And the Spirit is the one who does that. And it's for practical application. This is theology. Don't be afraid of the word theology. Theology is God's truth in all of life. Those of you who are scientists, you probably remember the name of Johann Kepler, who chased science from a creator-oriented view centuries ago. And he is said to have said, when somebody asked him about his pursuits, he said, I am thinking God's thoughts after him. It's a great line. Thinking God's thoughts after him. And that's not just for 
appropriately done science. It's really for all of life. We should be thinking God's thoughts after Him. You say, well, where do I find God's thoughts? Right here in the Word. And the Holy Spirit somehow takes these truths, takes spiritual truths to spiritual people, and applies them into our hearts and lives. Where are you going to get your truth? And one way to ask yourself a question about your spiritual growth is are you thinking God's thoughts after Him? Is your worldview defined by God's wisdom and God's truth and God's Word and God's plan? And are you thinking His thoughts after Him more faithfully and effectively than you were two months ago or two years ago or ten years ago? Because if you're just stagnating, you're very likely losing ground and allowing the philosophies of this world to dictate your emotions and your decisions and even your future. When God says, I've got my wisdom for you, it's here in the Word. Think my thoughts after me, if we can borrow that phrase from history. Do good theology, which all theology is the study of God. Give attention to the Word. Labor, even when you come to worship, labor along with the preacher to try to see how this applies to my life. Because true truth is for practical application. Now here's the problem in the text, and Paul anticipates it. The problem is this. Even though true truth is for those who love Him, and true truth is by His Holy Spirit, and true truth is for practical application, uh, the objection still hangs out there. If this is all true, why doesn't everybody else get it? Why does everybody else miss it? Why do people remain in the dark? If this is the glorious wisdom of the God who created the universe, why wouldn't people be drawn to it? Look in verse 14. Paul has his answer. The natural person, the word in Greek is a soulish person. And once again, like we saw with mature, it is used in other places to contrast someone who is... um, not, not necessarily mature, but here the idea is one who is of the earth, one who is of natural things instead of spiritual things, instead of supernatural things, one who functions with no reference to the spiritual realm. That's the way he's using this soulish word, this natural person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Here's the reason, for they are, tell me the word, folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. People aren't eager to embrace something they think is folly. Especially if there's a cost. And you know today there's a cost to embrace the wisdom of God in our culture. So a lot of people can know facts. I could take you in my library and show you stacks of books by men, primarily, who have written about the history of Christianity or doctrine, and they understand, in some ways, the facts far better than I do. They know Hebrew far better than I do, for certain. They know Greek far better than I do. And yet, they know the facts, but they're not able to apprehend and apply those facts to reality. And they are unbelieving scholars, and the world is full of them. And they are natural men or women who know a lot of facts about Christianity, but don't know Jesus. And this is where it's really the root of the question that's become somewhat of a cliche and almost a stereotype, that it has a noble, noble foundation of knowing Jesus personally. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him personally. The natural man can know a lot about Jesus. But if the natural person doesn't yield, doesn't repent, doesn't embrace Him as Lord and Savior, the Lord of glory, then He will be like those rulers. And He will know about Jesus, but He will not know Him. And I just need to say, this inability, don't go away and think, well, that doesn't seem very fair because they're not able. They're not able to understand spiritually. Why are they held accountable? Listen carefully. The inability is primarily 
an unwillingness. That's the reason they're not able, because they're not willing. In other words, it's not an intellectual objection so much as it is a heart objection. It's an issue of who will be Lord. It's an issue of I'm satisfied the way I am. And so therefore their unwillingness produces an inability. As long as they are unwilling, they will never yield themselves to ultimate truth. And these people, these natural people who surround us, and by the way, whom all of us were at one time, right? Let's not forget. Natural people are about as useful as a colorblind house painter or a blind Uber driver not driving a Tesla or a deaf music critic. So you shouldn't be taken back when your neighbor doesn't get substitutionary atonement, the blood of Jesus shed for sins. They they don't get that. But the Bible says they won't. Don't, Don't be confused and necessarily surprised. We often talk about it as though we are. But don't be that surprised when people deny God's creation order, which they're doing today about matters of gender. But they don't understand spiritual things. Don't, don't be that confused when they deny the resurrection or they don't like the idea of eternal punishment. They are constitutionally unable because they are unwilling in their hearts to receive this truth. And so verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things. Now, just stop right here. Read the Bible with common sense. That doesn't mean that I'm a nuclear physicist. I promise you I'm not. In the context, it's all things that have to do with ultimate truth. All things that have to do with the matters of life and death and and eternity. It doesn't mean that now you are an expert scientist just because you are a saved person. Judges all things is in this context of, of the wisdom of God versus the folly of men. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. And once again, read the Bible with some common sense. Sometimes spiritual people are judged. In church discipline, they're judged by the church. The Bible implies we ought to judge ourselves. But then on another hand, we can't really ultimately judge ourselves. We're going to see that in chapter 4. But what this is saying is that we shouldn't be intimidated by the unbelief around us. Because we're living in two different worlds. We shouldn't be too upset or surprised when others evaluate us in ways that are dismissive. Because they have no real data set to make a determination. And do you recognize there's a sense in which that should break our hearts? Because they have no ground to define or understand the truth. Verse 16, and again, Paul quotes Isaiah, likely from chapter 40 there. He says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? That's Paul's way of saying what in youth ministry over the last 50 years we've said, God is God and we're not. That's basically what the Old Testament is saying. God is God and we're not. So who's going to instruct God? But then look what Paul says. He brings that up. He says, we're not God. But then what does he say in the next phrase? It ends chapter, six, uh, chapter 2. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. So if we are in Christ, if we are believers, if the Holy Spirit dwells in our lives, then we are able to look at life and develop a philosophy and chase after a lifestyle that is defined in this dark and fallen age. It's defined by Jesus Christ. Evaluating all of life from the Savior's point of view. This is how we get to live. Evaluating all things through His love and through His holiness. One more time to quote D.A. Carson. To avoid the faddish fancies of cross-denying opinion makers. You know who that is today, right? It's the politicians. It's the entertainers. It's the elites. It's the Instagram influencers. But you know who else it is? It's too often our friends, too often it's our family and our neighbors. But we don't have to be defined by those things. Because if you're in Jesus, you have the mind of Christ. 
That's just Paul's summary way of saying, you have access to the wisdom of God. True truth. So here's the question this morning. Where is your truth, your wisdom coming from? Where is your truth, your wisdom for living? Where's it coming from? To whom do you go for wisdom? Because for the people of God, we have the mind of Christ. Why would we go anywhere else? Father, speak to our hearts today. Would you show us through your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, whom is active and working in our church and in our hearts and in our lives. Please, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds for where we are drifting into the folly of the world. We recognize, Father, that sometimes we do this in the way we spend our money. Sometimes we do it in the way we treat our neighbors. Sometimes we do it in the way we retaliate against those who have mistreated us. Sometimes we do it in the way we spend our time. Sometimes we do it in our attitudes toward the local church, in the way we serve in the church. We so often can find ourselves, like these Corinthians were doing, drifting back into a worldly philosophy instead of living by true truth, living by your wisdom, which is grounded in the holiness and the love of Jesus as he died on the cross. A cross-centered wisdom. So, Father, teach us, not only as a church family, but as individuals and as those of us who are responsible to lead our families, we pray that we would be people who recognize that there is a choice to make regarding where we go for wisdom. Help us, Father, through your Spirit, help us make wise choices. And for the few who may be with us or some who may be watching online and they have no capability for making that choice because they are still a natural person, a soulish person, not connected to the spiritual realm through what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. I pray for those who hear me this morning that they would not find rest until they resolve the issue of their soul and their guilt before you. Father, you are at work in our hearts and lives, giving us your wisdom for your eternal purposes, that your kingdom might be represented in our lives as we look forward to that eternal kingdom. So, Father, help us as we sing and as we pray and as we live lives, seeking your kingdom above all things, your wisdom, your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.